0: This is episode number 147, the compelling saga of Alison Tetrick, work ethic, perspective, and identity. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, sports science, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day
1: doing work and working hard and doing your best was just a part of our ethos. It was, did you do your best? Then you can't lose. As long as you can finish each day knowing you did your best and you worked hard, you can always do better.
0: Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. I'm pretty stoked. I'm heading to New York City for almost a week. Matt has a work conference there and I'm going just to hang out and take it all in. So that's going to be pretty fun. And then we're actually going on a vacation. That's right. A bikeless vacation. And we don't do this very often. In fact, probably the last time we did this was our honeymoon (laughs) quite some time ago but we're actually going on a Caribbean cruise that leaves out of San Juan, and I love cruising because everything is ready for you, you just have to show up, and then every day it stops somewhere new, and we always do different outdoor adventures on different islands, so I'm looking forward to that. Also exciting news, the Moxie and Grit jerseys, the three-quarter length mountain bike jerseys that have more of a relaxed fit, will be shipping in just a few days, so if you pre-ordered one, expect to see that really soon, and if you didn't pre-order any, we have a bunch available. I ordered extra this time. So I think you guys will be really pumped on those. Make sure you check it out at That's moxyandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y and grit.com. And we also have some new sock designs available. So if you want to up your sock game or just get some fun new cycling gear to keep you motivated to ride through these fall months, go check it out. I'm super excited about today's guest, Allison Tetrick. And this woman is a force to be reckoned with. A cowgirl at heart, literally. She grew up riding horses on a cattle ranch. Allison's attitude, work ethic in all areas of her life and her commitment to excellence makes her really stand out. She has an incredibly impressive list of accolades in cycling, including a bronze medal at Road TTT World Championships, multiple wins at Sea Otter. She's raced the Giro de Rosa and more recently has made a name for herself in the gravel world with one win and two podium finishes at Dirty Kanza. Allison loves to ride her bike, and it shows with the ultra-endurance gravel events. And not only is Allison an incredible athlete, and need I mention she played NCAA tennis and won the first half Ironman triathlon she ever entered, but she also has quite the academic resume. She has a BS in biochemistry, a nutrition degree, and an MS in clinical psychology. But things haven't always been easy for Allison. In 2010, she suffered a traumatic crash in a road race, shattering her pelvis and incurring a severe traumatic brain injury that left her reeling for months and even years. When her pelvis healed, she returned to racing, not realizing the seriousness of her head injury. And when she suffered a second concussion, things changed a lot. She couldn't read, she had to question her identity, and she would get lost in airports on the way to races. With the help of a neuropsychologist, she got back up on her feet and also had more perspective on her goals. After feeling like she had accomplished everything she needed in road racing, Allison decided to transition to gravel, and on her first Dirty Kanza attempt, she won it. If you're not familiar with the Dirty Kanza, it's a 200-mile self-navigated race on Kansas gravel roads in the Flint Hills. And since then, she has tackled every long gravel event she could find, including one in Iceland and also a bikepacking adventure on the Silk Road in Kyrgyzstan. In this episode, you'll laugh, you'll be inspired, and you'll learn a lot about competitive spirit, athletic maturity, the power of perspective, the danger with external validation, and even some interesting tidbits about both road and gravel racing. We also talked about her crash and how it changed her priorities and her identity and so much more. Make sure you share this episode with your friends on your social media accounts or just tell them about it and make sure you tag myself and Allison because I think a lot of people would really benefit, even if they're not a cyclist from listening to this episode. So here she is, Alison Tetrick. Alison Tetrick, I'm so stoked you're here. Oh, thanks for having me. I think it's, it's about time. I, um, this makes my day. Yeah, I've been following you for a really long time and I think it's funny still that we haven't met and I'm, I'm tempted to like come down to California and ride with you, but I'm not sure if I'd be able to keep up. <laughs> I think you'd
1: be just fine as long as you don't take me on you like single track mountain biking.
0: <laughs> yeah, we got to get you on the mountain bike to some of these endurance <laughs> events. You'd crush it. it's
1: embarrassing fact I actually don't own a mountain bike I have a lot of gravel bikes and a lot of road bikes but I don't own a mountain bike (laughs) yes yes that's true if
0: you can tread on the gravel like I own a gravel bike and I've only ridden it a few times and I I feel like a little bit nervous because there's no suspension and the tires are all skinny and it's got these weird handlebars so I think (laughs) it'll be
1: just fine (laughs) Well, we'll, maybe we'll just do a gravel ride instead and then we'll both be we'll both be okay. We'll be on dirt and then I'll be on my comfort bike. (laughs) All right. So I'm looking forward to
0: it. Yeah. So I'm I was really fun, like researching your background, because a lot of times whenever we start following people, we kind of see where they are now and didn't get to hear their story of where they came from. And I found a lot of fun similarities between us that made me feel like you're my soul sister. Like, we're both school nerds. We both were tennis players turned runners turned bike racers. So that's super fascinating. But like, I want to hear about your competitive spirit in school before we even start talking about sports.
1: Yeah, I am. Um, so I grew up on a cattle ranch, pretty secluded in California. And then up to, yeah, Northern California. So organized sports weren't really a thing because it was a, you know, long drive into town and you didn't really have next door neighbors to go play with. But I had my sister and we had horses and four wheelers and a volleyball net and we would just play. And then, you know, my dad would make playing work because we also lived on a ranch. So we were really active growing up, but not in more traditional sports. And so one thing though, that I think I started honing my competitive edge on was probably in school. Cause that was just something that there's clear deliverables of you can study, you can get a good grade or get your gold star and you learn something. And that was really satisfying for me. So, you know, I always wanted to get the best grades. I was you know, valedictorian in my high school, then you go to college and I ended up getting a scholarship to play tennis in college and then majored in biochemistry but same thing like very driven by studying and learning and developing that side of me so it was part of part of that was a very instrumental portion of my growth then that transitioned into sports but I think first and foremost it was always school and learning and getting better at something.
0: I love that. And I also have noticed and appreciate your cowgirl vibe on your Instagram. And I think it's badass. So <laughs> fun to hear that. that's where
1: that came from. So I had a truck in high school and it had a cowgirl up sticker on it. And, you know, I'd park my truck next to shop class, you know, because I was like, well, I like the guys in the shop, like they build things. So <laughs> I was always, um, you know, growing up on a ranch that was something that was really important to me. And it's a part of who I am. And my parents still have a cattle ranch up in Northern California up near Redding towards Mount Shasta. And so on my custom kits, I actually have the brand of our cattle for our ranch on that my kits. So I use that a lot too. And no one really knows that. But to me, it's something that just keeps my family really close and who I am close to my core. So I can always remember what matters most when we're out there suffering for long miles.
0: That's awesome. And do you still ride
1: horses? <laughs> I do. I do when I'm able. I don't currently have a horse in my like alley in my apartment here, but um, <laughs> I do, I love riding horses and, you know, going back and being at my family's ranch is awesome or any chance I can for visiting friends with property here is awesome.
0: I want to talk about your tennis experience in college. What was that like to identify as a tennis player whenever you kind of grew up not being an athlete? I mean, I'm sure you picked it up in high school, but I bet you a lot of the people you played with and against play tennis their whole life. Yeah.
1: As you know, being a tennis player, it's it's a super frustrating sport in a lot of ways because it's it's a skill sport. It's very mind-boggling. It can cause a lot of emotional distress when you're not performing well. And I did pick up tennis in high school, and I was very fixated, which isn't shocking, on going to be able to play NCAA tennis in college. So I would have this goal. I knew I was never going to be a professional tennis player because I didn't start till I was... 13 years old. So that's just not going to happen since it is a skill based sport. And I worked really hard at it, just almost as hard as I probably worked for my education and school side of things. And I worked so hard and it was so frustrating for me because I would be at the tennis courts earlier than anybody else and I would stay there later than anybody else and I would still be like scrambling to make the lineup, you know? And I'm like, okay, I made it, you know, I made it again, made it again. And for me, that was frustrating because I go, I knew I was a good athlete, but I wasn't really being expressed that well in the tennis court because I just lacked the 10 extra years that my competitors had playing tennis. And, you know, just hitting baskets of balls day in, day out since they were quite like quite a bit younger. So what I ended up doing is I think to channel some of that frustration. And I don't know if you experienced that with tennis, but since we both found endurance sports, I feel like we're Definitely like-minded individuals that way, but I I would focus really hard on the fitness aspect of it. So I would make sure I was you know fasted the foot like footwork drills, the running, the time mile. How much could I bench press? How much you know how many pull-ups could I do? And I got very fixated on that because I thought, well, if I'm only going to play five or six on the lineup, I might as well also. The coach knows I'm working so hard and I'm also very fit and motivated to do this to the best of my ability and. That is also kind of how I learned to love endurance sports because the running part of that, I was like, oh, you run five miles every day and you get faster at running five miles every day. I played tennis for two hours every day and it, I could still lose to to somebody that couldn't run as fast as I could. I don't know if you ever experienced that. But for me, it was very
0: frustrating. But I was like, but I'm faster, but she's better. Totally. <laughs> so <And also> the <laughs> mental maturity aspect, I think I lacked Like, I just never really learned about like how to have a strong mind. And there was lots of times I just beat myself mentally because I would just start feeling the pressure and I would choke. I
1: definitely did that. And I read, I'm sure you did too, but you know, I'd read all those tennis books and even like the art of warfare. I tried everything. I'm like, okay, how do I get strong on the court? You know, how can I work on not wanting to cry when the girl doesn't hand me the balls on the changeover the way I want to? And she like, you know, how girls get, they would like hit it to the other side of the court. You're like thanks, you're gonna make me go and walk and get those, you know, like the gamemanship that goes on in a tennis match. Oh, yeah. And I worked, I worked so hard to like, try to be confident. And I 100% like that resonates with me as very emotionally immature. as an athlete, I am always like, Oh, I could I could go back now and my professional, my professional bike racing self could go back to that girl with the visor and the tennis skirt on in Abilene, Texas and tell her, you are better than this, like top and (laughs) up. But I can't. And But I think a part of that probably made us both much better endurance athletes than we ever imagined, only because we probably gained a lot of mental fortitude through that internal battle. And then also finding a sport that truly helps you express your personality. And I feel like we found that in these long races and pushing our limits in our mind in ways that most people can't fathom. But I got offended the way a girl flipped her, you know ponytail at me from the other side of the tennis court. So, you know, I don't worry about that anymore. I'm much stronger. I promise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to ask you where your work ethic came from because you worked super hard in school and you work super hard in sports, like even before you found endurance sports and not everybody has that type of work ethic. So was that inspired by somebody or was that something that you just always did?
1: I think it's something that was inspired by my, my family there my parents, my grandparents, you know, we're a pretty close knit family. And for them, doing work and working hard and doing your best was just a part of our ethos. It was did you do your best, then you can't lose as long as you can finish each day knowing you did your best and you worked hard, you can always do better. And you know, my parents have a very free entrepreneurial spirit. And you know, it just blows my mind. They had this Cal Ranch at you know 25 years old, and they've got kids running around. and <laughs> and still working and doing, you know, other things. So that's something I've taken a lot of pride in. And that is part of my DNA. But, you know, sometimes, as you know, like, it's, it's hard, because you work a lot, and you work really hard. And you know, you fail a lot that, you know, because you're putting yourself out there and to make sure you find that life balance. But something that I found in my career as an athlete, and my career outside of being an athlete is, when I have all these pots of things that I can give energy to and work really hard towards, and I have goals that inspire me both professionally outside of sport. Cause I've always had a career outside of sport, which I found helped me perform better as an athlete. And then the same thing goes the other way, you know, like it keeps you motivated and inspired and constantly pushing those boundaries. And, you know, I think that's helps our development as human beings
0: <laughs> ultimately. Yeah, so how did you find bike racing from tennis? So
1: I, I have a biochemistry background and I was working in a biochemistry lab and after graduating and I was still pretty frustrated, honestly, with tennis. And I don't think I realized how frustrated I was until, you know, several years later where you're analyzing yourself one one night. <laughs> but I think I just had this you know, kind of unanswered athletic question, like what could have happened if I started playing tennis earlier? What can I do with this drive I have? And so that's where I found running because I was working in Cambridge, Massachusetts in a lab and, you know, the running in Boston is amazing. So I would just run every morning before work and I loved it. And I was like, oh, I'm pretty good at this, you know, this is fun. And then of course, like, couldn't handle running miles and miles on end. So I had to find something else to do to cross train, picked up bikes. And my grandfather, who actually recently passed away, but he was still racing bikes up to the age of eighty-five. And you know, he would tell me, it's like, oh, Al, you know, you should race bikes. And I thought that was the dorkiest thing I'd ever heard. So, you know, they wear those like, you know, brightly Colored clothing and it's like spandex and helmets. You know, I didn't like ruining my hair. So I'm like, oh, this looks really dumb. I don't want to race bikes. (laughs) He's like, oh, you know, you really could do this. You know, you're really strong. And so I was like, fine, I'll do a triathlon. So I signed up for a half Iron Man, won the half Iron Man, went to a bike race, won that. And then I actually went to this bike race with my grandfather. And I got invited to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And it was just so funny because my grandparents come and drive to see me there. And I'm just training, training at the OTC. And they're like, we told you. And I was racing in Europe a few months after that. So it just kind of went really quickly. And it turns out, you know, bike racing was a good sport for me. I mean, I lacked some of the, you know, once again, like in tennis, I haven't raced bikes forever. So sometimes, you know, I don't have, I didn't have all the skills in my, in my quiver,
0: when I first started, but you
1: know, you learn and you learn by fire, of course, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it seems with road racing, like you have to be a lot more strategic. Like if I entered a road race, I wouldn't know what to do because I don't really know the strategy. So that's something that you probably you're like how to learn really quickly. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like high speed chess
1: and you know, you make a few mistakes or you get made a fun of for doing a few mistakes. You can learn pretty quickly, but my coach, I remember he, he told me this once though, cause I, I don't, I'm a kind of a bulldozer anyway. So he'd be like, you know, some people learn by being told some people learn by being exp- you know, experience and some people never learn. And he was like, and I don't know which one you are yet. <laughs> I was like, I still don't because I still make dumb mistakes out there, but yeah, you, you have to be really aware, like you have to be prepared. You should know the course, know your competition, you know, things like that and have a strategy, but ultimately it just takes experience and time and, usually strong bike riders like riders win too so
0: <laughs> and it's, been it's a while okay since you were racing like the world tour stuff over in europe and it seems like the state of women's cycling even in road racing has changed quite a bit in the last five years like how has it changed do you think since you were in it
1: yeah my last year racing world tours 2017 so i think though it's the depth of the field so i started in 2009 that was my first professional full professional year And through 2017, and the depth of the field has increased immensely, which is really great to see. I mean, the women are so strong and, you know, and especially to see American cycling and the development. And we have some incredible athletes in the pipeline that are continuing to shine. I mean, we just, Chloe won a world championships yesterday in the individual time trial, which is phenomenal for USA Cycling. I've seen ebbs and flows of the race day since I started racing. So some years it's fantastic and some years it's not. Um, So you're still looking for sponsorship dollars and ways to promote women's cycling, especially and what outlet is that on and how can we gain exposure in a sport when you can't watch it on TV as much or, you know, so looking for ways to do that. I have definitely seen it improved and, you know, especially with the new world tour system next year, we have minimum salary requirements which is going to hurt some teams, but it's a, I still think it's a positive direction to go to see how the sport can sustain that. And there's incredible stories of some inspirational women out there that should be shared. So I think there's a lot of models we can continue to use. So I'm excited to see that progress.
0: And has it been, was it hard to be on a team? I guess it would be easier to go from a team sport to more of a solo sport, but like as a solo athlete, I think it'd be really hard to go compete on a team when you know that you're kind of not the person being set up to win, and you're doing everything you can so you can set somebody else up to win.
1: Yeah, it can be hard when you're not used to that. But ultimately, it depends how that team is structured. And what I found, it was always better when management was behind that. You know, really good teamwork as like a mentality, I guess, because you know, if a director is going to say, you know, this is your role in this race, this is your role, you know, and be very clear on roles. And then also, even if we don't win to acknowledge the work people did that day that filled their role. And I always felt like if I felt appreciated for what I did, even though your climber blew up or your sprinter crashed or whatever happened, but if I, you know, gotten the break or closed those gaps at this point, that point, or, you know, did my effort then to still feel acknowledged from that. So I think that comes from leadership and then also the leaders on the team that you're working for. If it's me, if it's you, if it's somebody else that to be realistic on your expectations on what your role is as an athlete or your abilities, and also to have gratitude and thank your teammates for the efforts they do. And I always felt that that extended off the bike, because it's one thing to lead out somebody for a sprint, but it's also another thing to be a good roommate and a good friend and a teammate off the bike, and that helps the general morale of the team. So it's a little bit of checking your ego at the door and knowing your role and and having clarity on that, but that's very similar to how you would go to your office job or other things we do in life, like when family and work. But it is you do have to let go of your results and be okay with that, but also you're still gonna get paid the same you're splitting prize money. And so for me, it was more of, if you feel like you're respected and appreciated for your job, and you then also get to celebrate for the ultimate team goal, which is a win, I loved that. Those moments just still give me the chills.
0: Awesome, thanks for explaining that. That actually is super helpful for me, who hasn't really done much road racing. Did you prefer to be the person who is kind of the leader or the person who is working for the team? Because I imagine that the way that you would feel would be a little bit different in terms of pressure but maybe it's not.
1: I actually, it totally is. It's just, it's how the pressure is distributed. So it's great for when everyone's working for you, you get the article, you get your photo or whatever, you know, like you get the press, right. And that's cool. Like you have external validation there, but the pressure is really immense. Cause you know, not only are, it depends on whatever race is it five other women or seven other women are working for you team management believes in you. You're, you know, it's like all these things are coming in the line. And then what if you fail? And when you do this race, so say I never was the climber. So I'm going to use that example, but you know, you have all these, this team, like working for you to get you to the final climb of the day. And you're supposed to drop everybody and win or whatever. And so you actually can't do anything all day and then wait till your it's your moment to shine. And so it's kind of funny because you have so much pressure at one moment, but you could fail and then it's also kind of boring to, like the rest of the day cuz you don't get to play like you are just sitting there and saving energy and eating and i had a hard time failing my team and you know letting people down was really hard so then when i was working for somebody i had the opposite problem where then i felt like i was getting lazy is the wrong word cuz i was working really hard but you're you also can go i'm going to work so hard till i blow up and then when i blow up cool You know, and then I was like, no, but then I was like learning that I'd I'd stop pushing through that barrier of even if I've blown up, then like still like scratch claw, get yourself back in there. But ultimately, like if you did your job right, you really should get dropped, right? (laughs) You know, but then I, I felt like I like that was an excuse for me. And I found like a safety net, like, well, I did my job, you know, he told me to get in the break and then bring this back and then lead it out to here. And now I can sit up. And and I learned as an athlete, I had to retrain. No, but you still don't quit you know, so it goes against the team dynamics, but now what I do in, you know, longer distance races and things like, I can't go back to that mentality that I kind of learned for a couple of years. Cause I'm like, well, it pays the bills, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, cause there's a sense of desperation you get when you're supposed to win or you have to make this split and you have to do it. But if you're like, well, they didn't really expect me to get this far anyway, I'm still here, but eh. you know, yeah. <laughs> like no one cares like about me because I'm going to finish 28th and you know I should save my energy and you know work again tomorrow which is what you should do and paper but in your head it did do something I don't know if that makes sense to you but it, it like you have a safety net to fall no, on totally versus does. like a sense of desperation
0: yeah and you also have been on the podium at world championships what was that like that was probably like
1: one of the most incredible experiences of my life is to be on this incredible, Oh man, it's the team I was on Astana and we did the team time trial and being on a team where no one really speaks a lot of English and living in Italy and not really knowing. I mean, I didn't have a power meter. I didn't have, you know, I was just like, I didn't know what the training was. Like I spent weeks just going, where are we going today? And they're like, don't worry about it. And um, what are we eating? Don't worry. <laughs> you <know? laughs> And so it was, incredible to how this team, we formed this really unique bond. We suffered a lot and he had picked the team time trial team and we ended up doing a lot of these same races and training camps together, but we didn't, well, maybe I just had a language barrier, but I didn't quite understand the purpose of it. It was a little, you know, Italian and in a beautiful way, but we all learned to really trust each other and love each other and take care of each other because we would be hungry or it'd be really late. And we were still driving back from a race in France. And, you know, we'd be like sharing like s- secret food we'd stashed. And we learned it like so much about each other that when it came to racing, we just really worked well together. And it goes back to that teamwork thing, but all of us gave 110% and no one had an ego on that team. It wasn't like, I'm going to pull through and show everybody how strong I am. It was like, how can I best help my teammate? Cause it looks like she's suffering, <laughs> you know? And so that still gives me the chills because we were probably, like, the happiest bronze medalist ever, you know? Like, you see sometimes second place doesn't look happy, and then, like, bronze is, like, so stoked. <laughs> and that was us. Like, we were crying. We were so excited. And I felt like that was a very high moment in my career that I could really celebrate taking a leap of faith, going to Europe and racing full-time there on – being the only American on a team and just going for it because I knew if I didn't do it then I would never do it again. And then to be rewarded that way at the end of the year was something I never would have imagined because I was still already on cloud nine after being able to experience everything I did.
0: That's so awesome. And like there was a really interesting turn of events in your career with some bad crashes that you had and some traumatic brain injury and broken pelvis. Like, can you talk about that in case people aren't familiar with that part of your story? Yeah,
1: I had a pretty traumatic crash in 2010 with a broken pelvis and a traumatic brain injury, and then I crashed again at 2011 Pan American Games, and that concussion on top of the brain injury made it really bad. So there was a span of time I was racing I, when I came back from the broken pelvis because it's very easy to focus on broken bones for healing because you can see an X-ray and you can say, oh, it's getting fluffy. You know, the bone is fusing. You know, things are looking good. And when you're dealing with a head injury, it's much different. I mean, you can go to a neuropsychologist, you can go to a therapist, you can go to a neurologist, and you know, do all these things. But so many of the symptoms are, you know, they're ambiguous. It's hard to decide, like decipher, you know, what you're dealing with. And then also with mental health being something that's not the easiest thing to be open about. And what I learned also is, as a professional athlete You want to hide that, right? Because you don't want to show chinks in your armor. You don't want to be like, hey, I am having a panic attack going down this descent or I'm depressed. So I I dealt with some depression and just a lot of anxiety. Um, I had to relearn to read. I could read, but I had to learn how to focus and be able to fuse sentences together. And that was difficult and learning concentration without getting, you know, all these symptoms of like headaches and vertigo. And I did that while racing, (laughs) which was not great but that was my choice. And, you know, for so much of, you know, so many of us, the bike becomes this vessel for therapy and release of all those kind of darker demons we have too, and we're running from things and, and a way to find solace. And I, I'm happy I did it, but I mean, I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, it made it really hard in my personal life. It was hard on my family, of course, but what's I learned from that, I mean, I was pretty rock bottom for a bit and I did come back really fast because, like, I mean, I was fast as far as I was winning a lot of races. (laughs) And I was, I came back because I was so fixated on making this comeback that what I did wrong with that is I was so fixated on my identity as a cyclist. I forgot about everything else that I was. And so when you crash again, or you fail, or your team is working for you, like we were earlier discussing, it's like, that's really heavy burden to carry. And I struggled with that. Like, failing that. And then I'm already dealing with my mental health issues. And I felt like I wasn't performing well. And you feel like you're a failure and all these things. And so I ended up working with a neuropsychologist to help me kind of find that balance of, you know, you are more, you know, you're a biochemist, you work, you have a day job, you ride bikes, you're a sister, you're a daughter, you know, granddaughter, these things like you're so much more. So make sure if you're going to go ride bikes that it's on your terms. So that's why I always kind of kept doing that. And I ended up going to graduate school and studying psychology. Part of the reason is my neuropsychologist was amazing and saved my life in so many ways. And then also we were just talking about earlier, but being a bookworm and a nerd and a, you know, smart person was so much part of my identity that I'd lost in that bit that I thought, I wonder if I could still learn. Like, I, I mean, can I still focus and study and, you know, go to graduate school? So I did. And it was different. You know, I wasn't it was harder. It took me maybe a little longer, you know, to focus or to take tests and to write. But I think that was very expensive therapy, but <laughs> but worth it. So it, it was a long haul. And, and I think that's just something that we should all be aware of is discussing, you know, head injuries, of course. And, you know, it's very hard to diagnose them all the time. And, and then also just like mental health and being there and supporting and accepting people when they're, maybe floundering a bit or failing or acting like everything's okay. And so I know I try really hard to show that side of myself because with a head injury, like it, you could say I recovered in 2012 or 13 or 14, 15, but it, you know, every day is a different battle and you know, you just, you know, certain things will make me symptomatic and I have to deal with that, but you never know what the person on the street is dealing with either. So it's what we can talk about and be open with, I guess. So the bike has helped a lot it hurt a lot too, (laughs) but it's helped quite a bit.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting with brain injuries and also with depression, because as endurance athletes, we're like our DNA is I'll just keep pushing. I'll ignore pain. Oh, like this is in my head or I'm just making excuses or I'm just being lazy. And you just learn like your general mode of action is just to keep pushing no matter what. And it's really hard to, especially when you've had a brain injury and you can't think straight to actually be objective about what's happening. And yeah, I've had some concussions and, you know, one of them was not as serious as yours, but it was pretty serious. And having people around me who could help me separate myself from my drive was super helpful. And I actually had never even heard of neuropsychology until recently. So like, can you tell people what that is? it's an interesting mixture. So when I studied it, basically
1: a consortium with the neuroscience program at Stanford, and then you're studying clinical psychology. So it's a blend of using the information that we've gained in neuroscience and applying it to psychology. So it's how you're like, so some of the chemistry behind your brain, and then also still though using you know, more of that psychology, like bigger science, you know, where you're not thinking like neurons, you're thinking, how do I help you focus more? And so you can help people with brain injuries, especially, you know, whether is that from concussion, traumatic brain injury, and then to other brain issues like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's and think about how that chemistry in their brain is changing the way the brain is acting. But then also, how can you help them solve then daily problems versus just taking medication or does that make sense?
0: yeah for sure so
1: it, it, yeah it's taking like the science side and adding the psychology side which still is a science but it's much like macro scale so for me like you know you can learn how that brain is working and then apply it to a, like how you can then act and interact engage and hopefully you know get back into your normally like your normal routines and how you were i i think there's something interesting on brain i don't know if you've had it at, this is a good thing if you haven't, but if you haven't had enough concussions to know this, but like you, you start to, you know, like there's some changes for sure. Like I was saying like every day is a daily battle, but you know, part of it's also to en- embrace who you are and give yourself grace. And we are all you know, flawed human beings, but to okay, Hey, this is where I am now. And I am different than I was prior to head injuries. Maybe I'm a little more impulsive and brash and But also I'm like, but maybe that makes me stronger. Now I stand up for myself a little more than I used to. And, you know, I have to, this is who I am now. So what I'm going to do is how can I be that best version of whatever today is? (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) So that's helped with that too, is, is like when you could say, Hey, I'm having these symptoms. I will still want to go out and ride my bike, but you know, how can I do this? And so the neuropsychologist helped with that too, like working on how I could approach, you know, working my balance and then also, my psychology. So separating, like we were talking about separating my identity as only an athlete and to find more life balance and then also balance on like my overall like spatial awareness. So he was really able to blend those two bits of science and help me recover.
0: Yeah. The identity piece I think is really hard for anybody that's super passionate about something, whether it be you're a cyclist, whether it be you're an entrepreneur even like a parent identity being like mom or dad. And whenever that identity becomes too all encompassing or whenever the identity shifts because of a change, it can be like super challenging for that person. And it's really hard to keep a big picture perspective when you're going all in on something. So like what advice can you give people for diversifying like their self-worth and their identity?
1: Yeah, I think when you hear talks, I mean, I know like maybe to be the best in the world at what you do, you have to go all in and that comes at a sacrifice and it's sacrificing, you know, those that you love, it's sacrificing other interests and things like that. And I've always like kind of cringed at the word sacrifice when it comes to sport, because I think that we are, um, I'm going to use the word blessed, but we're, you know, we're blessed to have this opportunity or as, you know, Yeah. Billy Jean King would say pressure is a privilege. Maybe it's a, it's a privilege, like it's a privilege to be able to go and ride your bike. It's a privilege to be able to go race your bike. Like we're, if you're healthy, you're happy, you woke up this morning and, and you get to go push your limits in a physical aspect. That's awesome. But I don't think that's a, you should make a sacrifice to other things that really matter. So I always have been like, oh, you're a professional athlete. You've sacrificed so much. I'm like, no, I chose to do this. And so (laughs) <laughs> like, I want to, and to remember that, that when we go all in and we get so focused on these external goals and, you know, you, you want the belt buckle or do you want the metal or just your, I don't know, the PR on Strava, you know, like you're, you get so fixated on these things that I just have to remind myself. And I still do a lot of times at the start of a race, when I get nervous and I have to be like, you know, you chose to be here, Allison, like <laughs> you, but, you know, you buckled up those shoes this morning. You you actually like flew here, built your bike. <laughs> you know, here you are. And so I have to remind myself that I should be having fun while doing that because I chose to. And and to find fun in the pressure, and to also, you know, if you miss a workout because it's your niece's birthday or your daughter's dance recital or your grandmother's having a something, you know, like it, it, it to then also miss a workout now and then to go and and to enjoy those things because. I made a mistake once. I went all in on an event and I lived like a nun and I was probably not very nice to people because I was very focused on myself and altitude training and doing this particular goal. And then I ended up crashing. And, you know, you need to ride from the airport and then you're like, oh shoot, I haven't called my friends in a while because I've been so focused on myself. And then I just learned that. I said, you know, I never want to do that again. Like I don't want to isolate myself that then it only becomes about me and my result. Like life is so much more than that. So I think that we just have to remember that. And it's, you know, we're all emotional and passionate human beings about what we do. So it's not going to be that hard to find all the things we love in life.
0: Yeah. And like, whenever you zoom out major big picture and think of mortality, like this is what I try to do when I feel like I'm stuck being too fixated on something is I tell myself, like, I'm not going to wish that I worked harder at this. I'm going to wish that I spent more time with my friends and family. So I need to just put this away and accept that it's okay that I'm not doing it. And the greater, more important thing is relationships. But it's so hard sometimes to accept that.
1: It is. It's hard. And I've also, <laughs> that's much probably nicer way than I've, I've done it to myself where I get so fixated on it. And then I'm like, you know what? If you walk, you know, two blocks to the left, the 7-Eleven, and you told everyone that you just lost this race, they don't care. Like what you're doing and what like you think your world just ended over a performance or a missed training session or did you gain a couple pounds or you know all these things and you literally walk down the street and you could be in the town that there are 10,000 people doing your race and somebody still wouldn't care (laughs) like it doesn't matter so then you have to be like okay get over yourself a little bit and then think about what really matters and like I don't know say orbiting around that and Mm -hmm. So I have mantras that go with that, or you know, things to make sure I take time for that. So,
0: yeah, I, I actually know. think that, I actually I actually <laughs> think that way in races. Like if I'm racing, I'm like, oh, like I'm not doing as well, or something bad happened, or even if I am doing really well, I remind myself like this bike race is the tiniest little speck in the yeah, grand scheme of what's happening in the world right now. And like very few people actually care. So I just like need to get out of my self-centered little universe about my bike race.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm glad somebody else does that. Cause then I was like, wait, am I the only one no. that does that? I'd be like, <laughs> I remember one time my coach, I'm like, I won this race. And he was like, just because you went hard, doesn't make you special. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I guess you have a point. <laughs> so yeah, you have to like, Because I also though you perform better that way, I think, because like I always perform better if I'm happier. And I know a lot of people talk about that. But if I release a little bit of the pressure and still hold myself to the highest standard I can, but also a little like get over yourself, you know, like, come on, Allison, get over yourself. Like you are a speck in this and no one cares. Then it also helps me then. I sometimes go harder because I'm not fearing failure as much too. So I think it can help performance because as soon as we let those insecurities creep in, like, you know, we were talking about mass starts and maybe you miss the split you want, you know, there's a girl up there and you're like, I really should beat her on paper. I should beat her, but why is she up there? And then you like start beating yourself up and you let all this insecurity creep in and that just doesn't make you perform any better. So if there's a way that you can then take that, be like, you know what, that's okay. Like the race is in front of you. Don't worry about it. You have to race your own race. It really doesn't matter. Do the best you can. And then suddenly, you know, you could get the most out of yourself because you aren't fearing that failure and letting your ego get in the way of a better performance.
0: Yeah. Something my husband has really helped me with in terms of competition is like he says, if someone beat you, that means you didn't deserve to win and someone was just better than you that day. And you should be like really happy for them and be inspired by the fact that someone was better than you. And it doesn't make you less than because they beat you. And yeah, I remember he said that to me like five or six years ago. And it was so helpful to hear that. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's super helpful. I always the one I use is like, just do your race, like control your controllables. And like, you have to do your race. You can't let somebody else dictate that too. And so at the end of the day, if I controlled what I could. Was I prepared? Did I eat well? Did I, you know, have my equipment right? Did I know the course? You know, all these things that can go into that bucket of preparation. And then dude, did I do my race? Yeah. You know, if I made a dumb mistake, you're right. Like then they deserve to win because I was an idiot or like, you know, or they're just better, which is awesome because we can't all have perfect days. I mean, that's just not how it works. And then we wouldn't watch sports if there wasn't all that drama of failure, (laughs) failure and glory.
0: And I think that there's a level of athletic maturity that comes with being in a sport for a long time or just being an athlete for a long time. And we were talking about like prioritization of how you spend your energy and like when to go all in and when not to, and also how to deal with failure. And yeah, like that's something that you just can't read in a book necessarily. It's something that you have to experience. And it sounds like you've done such an incredible job with that. Yeah, isn't it fun though to sit
1: And you think like we were talking about, oh, if I could go back to my younger self, we're like, oh, we're so wise now. And then we'll do this again in 10 years. we will be like, oh, man, if only if only. But um, I do think that there with that uh, maturity as an athlete, then you also you deal like it becomes a little more level. And sometimes I am a little jealous of, you know, I, I miss that you know when you first start you don't know failure yet and you just go as hard as you can and then you watch and they completely explode but you're like oh my goodness but they were going so hard that's amazing I don't know how to do that anymore but I really know how to pace myself and make wiser choices (laughs) so sometimes I miss that like oh she's so young that looks great (laughs) (laughs) and like she hasn't failed yet maybe she never will have to (laughs) but like I think looking now though with that you it maybe flatlines a, a little bit of the highs and lows, you know, because I'm not as devastated from losing. I'm not as, you know, elated from winning, but I'm just much more confident and having fun at what I'm doing and finding so much satisfaction and riding my bike and hanging out with my friends and doing something every day that I love that I'm like, oh man, that's what it's supposed to be about this whole time. <laughs> but I don't know if I could have made it to this point without all those like supreme peaks and valleys prior. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And the external validation piece of putting a number plate on your bike and having everybody watch you, like everybody's watching that, you know, the five people that care. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard whenever you're like, cause you get a hit of dopamine whenever you win a race and like everybody's like so excited and it's this big deal. But even if you're second place, like people don't care nearly as much. And it's so hard because whenever you're putting everything out there and you're going so hard and you're hoping for the best and then you don't get external validation, it can be really hard. And I think that that's why some people don't stay in the sport as long is because it's really hard to not get that all the time. So do you have any advice for people who maybe kind of struggle with that? I had to
1: do it, I guess, to encourage myself if we were talking about this, but if I did my best, so it's like if you prepared and did you do your best because people are are going to win you're going to get beat more times than you're going to win most likely. I mean, that's just sport. And so I had to make sure that I was finding goals that inspired me. So do I want to show up to this race because I want to do it or someone told me I had to, you know, so it's finding a goal to inspire me and not somebody else. And it's also about making sure I was proud of my effort. And my coach also told me this and and it was like, you know, be hard on yourself in the moment. Like, you know, that break is going or you need to go harder. You know, you do need to make that split be hard on yourself then, but don't then spend the next seven days beating yourself up over not making it. Like you only be hard when you need to go that hard in that moment. And then you have to let it go because you can't go back and change that. So I think it's finding goals that inspire you and not what to- somebody told you to inspire. Like, you know what I mean? Like some people tell you what goals you should do. Like, you know, go do Ludville, go do, I mean, everyone has their bucket list events or, you know, if that doesn't inspire you, like, you know, find a goal that inspires you. And then you have to, I think, which it sounds pretty cliche, but I don't think you should do it for the result. And, you know, I've raced professional sports for a long time and yes, I I, I like to win. I really try to win, but honestly, I want to make sure I'm having fun when I'm doing it or am I enjoying what I'm doing? And it's not always fun suffering for 12 hours on a bike, but am I enjoying the process? Am I enjoying my community? Am I, you know, waking up with a smile on my face, excited to ride my bike. Yes. Okay. Then I'm doing that right. So I think it just can't totally be result driven because those are very few and far in between. So if you can find validation from other things like the process, like your bike friends and your bike family and community, and then what do you do with this, you know, beautiful life you have and this platform you have, if you're going to win races, you have this platform then to share your passion. You could, you know, raise money for good things. You can basically take the bike as a vessel to do good things with it. So thinking about being able to race is a privilege. Having that pressure is a privilege is Billie Jean King quote. But also then, like, where do you get that validation? It can't just be from results. Else, It's a very empty and lonely place to be, I think.
0: Yeah, like having greater purpose. Yeah, And, you
1: know, not to take, you know, it's a privilege what we're doing and, and to have a purpose a why, you know, yes, you want to get stronger. Yes. You want to see the power numbers go up, the Strava QOMs happening, like all that super fun, but, you know, find that bigger purpose and what really motivates you and inspires you to do that, you know, and and then we get to push these crazy barriers and boundaries in your body that, you know, you didn't know you could do. And, and that's where I think our best results come from when you're free and able to express yourself athletically and you're happy doing it. I love that. It sounds very
0: hippie. <laughs> no, it sounds good. <laughs> so what made you, I actually believe it. <laughs> what, what made you transition from this like amazing world tour road racing career to gravel?
1: I had felt like I had succeeded in, you know, everything I had really set out for in road racing, except Olympics. I never went to the Olympics, but I went to every other huge international events in the world. And I traveled around, lived in lots of countries and got to represent my country several times at, you know, Pan American games and things like that, which is, you know, incredible honor. And I didn't feel like there was really anything else I wanted to do in this sport. And I needed to be honest with myself on that. And then also, I will tell you, I mean, I was getting scared, you know, I just really didn't want to crash and go back to that dark place. And so I found myself, Breaking more or you know faltering in races and I thought you know there's somebody else out there that really wants this job (laughs) and I wasn't having fun I spent a lot of the time in the race scared I mean I could still do my job but I was scared and I was tired of being scared and I wanted to go and do things that looked like fun and gravel racing looked like fun (laughs) and it is and so when I started gravel racing Rebecca Rush we had the same coach and she she kept like kind of elbowing me like check this out and I'm like it looks like you get to ride your bike all day which that sounds rad and you get to like eat and drink with your friends afterwards also cool because after I get done racing you know I just you know get in a bus somebody gives you a panini and you go to the next race I'm like no I want to go and like drink and hang out and eat pizza that sounds great (laughs) and so I met this incredible community and I just got so hooked it was it was fantastic
0: (laughs) and what was your first gravel race that you did Dirty (laughs) Kansas, All or nothing, man. Yeah. All in. I know.
1: Yeah. I was still racing world tour when I I did it. So I was racing for silence and I asked them at the beginning of the year, like, cool. I'll," You know, I was kind of thinking I wanted to step out and I had some points and stuff. So they're like, oh, you should stay. And I was like, ah, maybe. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll stay. But can I do dirty Kansas?" And they're like, that's not going to help you at all racing on the road. But I did. And it was awesome. I I just absolutely loved it. I had never ridden my bike over 120 miles. And then I signed up for a 200 mile gravel race. (laughs) So it was, it was fantastic.
0: And that was the year you won, right? Yes. Have you won more than once? Sorry. No, I
1: have, I won. And then I got second. I got first, I have the course record. And then that year, and then I've gotten third and second
0: Mm -hmm. since. Awesome. And is that something like you want to keep going back and it's like elusive? Or is it a thing where you're like, okay, like I want to do something different now.
1: I will go back this year or in 2020. But for me, gravel isn't, I feel very fortunate in this, but for me, it's not very result driven at all. Really. It is about the experience, the adventure and pushing some limits. I hadn't done a ton of endurance. Like, I guess I'd done endurance. And as far as like road cycling or like a half marathon, but never, like I said, never over 120 miles. And now. I mean, now I can do that. And so it's interesting to push my body past that. But so some of it's really experiential for me and it's more about the community and the adventure. So yes, I will be back to that. But I what I love right now is there's so many amazing gravel events that are just popping up all over the world that I get to go to. Yeah. And I mean, I raced in Iceland this year, which was, you know, you went around a volcano. You know, I did Rebecca's Private Idaho. You're going to like in the pioneer, you know, you see Pioneer Mountains. I did it. They did one in Cascade and um, Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder. And it was five days and we went around the Cascades and camped every night. Like, that's cool. So, I mean, there's so many things you can do, as you know, like just off-road, like for exploring and seeing beautiful terrain. You're not on the roads. You're kind of just adventuring. And I find that pretty spectacular. So that part is kind of what draws me back to more gravel. And I like the races, but I also really enjoy the exploring and the adventure side of things, which you're still pushing your limits and going fast, but you get to see some crazy views and meet some really rad people. So I think it's a fun sport.
0: Yeah, I can truly appreciate that. And mountain bike stage racing is that for me. But I have to say, like a few years ago, I said, there's no way I'll ever do gravel. There's no like everyone kept trying to get me to go do dirty Kansas. I was like, to me, that sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) And I I know there's amazing community and like, I'm not supposed to knock it till I try it, but seeing all these other gravel events pop up that have like different types of experiences make me interested in, yeah, getting involved in the community with it because it's so cool that gravel can, it's kind of like the middle ground for people that started as road cyclists or people that started as mountain bikers, or maybe people that, just don't want to be on single track anymore because of risk, or they don't want to be alone out there, or whatever it is. And it's it's really cool that it's this like catching net for all these awesome people.
1: Yeah, it, it that's what's kind of like what I like about it is it's you know I'm, I'm sure you have that for a mountain biking, but when I came from road, you felt like you were just kind of existing on this pedestal, you know, because you go and do this race, and yeah, maybe people come out and watch you, you know, the five people that care or whatever, or on the internet, you know, like we're talking about. But now like in gravel, like you get to start with 2000 people and your mass start and you have all these people. And then, yeah, you may go really fast or maybe you don't that day or whatever. And then, but they all get to do the same course that you could hang out with them. And so you meet your fans, your community, your supporters, your sponsors, or you're interacting with them at such like a grassroots level. I feel like it's a lot easier to make an impact and it's more inclusive. And so then everyone can kind of share in that experience. And and that's what you want to talk about with your beer afterwards or your whiskey or whatever, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, is like, urban. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh man. Yeah. And then you can just share that experience and, and it becomes this really community driven event that way. And so I, I just, I love that part of it. Yeah. The, the camping, the stage race one was bizarre and it was awesome, but I don't camp, but
0: that well, was you do interesting... know. <laughs> I know,
1: I know, I actually got to take my gravel bike on a, Bike packing trip in Kyrgyzstan last year too. So like, yeah, gravel bikes are rad. See, we should ride gravel.
0: So a friend of mine, Jeff Kirkov, just did a bike packing race there. Oh yeah, is that the same race or is that something different?
1: I did it just not as a race. I just did it for fun. But yeah, I did the Silk Road. I don't think we yeah. did the exact same course, but it was a very similar area. I mean, a lot of the same roads, or at least technically the same road. Yeah, but that, I didn't look looked, it exactly
0: that, at the map. That just looked awesome. It looked really beautiful oh it's yeah it's stunning and i know some people are listening to this and they're like oh my god like ask her about her tires ask her about her race pacing like ask her about all the details of gravel racing (laughs) i'm I'm not going to do that because a lot of people that listen to this podcast aren't super bike geeky but for the bike geeky people that really want to like learn that stuff i'll link it in the show notes but they should go listen to the interview that you did with trainer road and you'll get like all the good information there like how she hydrates and the equipment she uses and I, I thought it was interesting because there's a lot of parallels to endurance mountain biking but yeah
1: for sure and yeah we can follow up the tire pressure is a uh, people ask that all the time or tires and I mean it's it's a whole can of worms that we don't have another hour to talk about that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> well we do but <laughs>
0: Yeah. That's something that I'm still learning myself. I just put some like mountain bike wheels on my gravel bike. I had these like carbon wheels and I was like, I wonder if this will work. And then I put the gravel tires on. I'm like, I think this works. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. I like people ask me for cans, like what tire pressure I ride, And I'm like, I actually don't know, like have my mechanic do it. Cause I would lose sleep over it, you know? So I just, I'm like, you choose and make sure I'm safe. <laughs> And make sure I don't flat, but then, you know, sometimes this happened
0: too,
1: <laughs> but I, it stresses me out too much. I mean, I do know at the end of the day, I actually got it wrong. Cause I, coming from road, I like higher tire pressure. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of higher tire pressure and mountain biking you are used to lower. And so I'm like, can I run like 60? And he's like, no, 48. I'm like, how about 50? He's like, no, 48.
0: <laughs> it's so weird how it comes in like one PSI. Like people are like, I run like 23 or like, yeah, yeah. I I don't even, yeah,
1: that's a whole nother story.
0: You can geek out on that all day. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about how gravel has changed since you started doing it in the last couple of years. It's
1: definitely become less of a, you know, grassroots kind of more grungy to, you know, now it can be full-blown road racing out there where, you know, there's now there's prize money and team tactics and gravel teams and, you know, but. That's good. I mean, the sport's growing. It's definitely, that's changed, but you can pick and choose, you know, what event you want to go to based on your goals and what experience you want. And there's still going to be a fun party bus probably at most of those rides. But, you know, that the popularity has, has definitely increased where, you know, you're getting a lot more professional road riders coming over or, you know, sponsors definitely seeing the value of a team or, you know, ways to promote their products or athletes or brands. So that's changed a bit, but it still has its core of fun and adventure. And, you know, I I like to try out all the new events to check it out and, and to see that. But I think there'll always be that kind of still like grungy underculture. But I, I do think there are gonna be some that are much more gonna get into like the road side of things. Mm-hmm. I mean people are having arrow bars on and oh. yeah teams
0: oh I think yeah I think Jeff Kabush like I, I I don't know if I read it or not but it was something about Jeff Kabush talking about arrow bars and how people shouldn't use them yeah. or something I, I don't know sorry yeah. Jeff if I got I, that wrong <laughs> yeah yeah no I don't
1: he doesn't do arrow bars and I yeah I don't need it I'm not going to use arrow bars either because I want donuts and things oh, yeah. and not I was a time trialist on the road so I, I'm good with not you know Arrow
0: bars. You could like happy put the put the whole the donut through the time trial bar, maybe.
1: Oh, could, like, that actually could work, them. but no, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I want to go with cool factor now. I mean, come on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about the specialized sponsorship community stuff that I see you doing all the time on your Instagram. Like, it looks like you're really involved with the brand, and there's lots of like community forward events that you get to do.
1: Yeah, I I have it's a, a dream job for me to work with Specialized. It's been awesome. I'm. I'm in Northern California. They're not too far here in the Bay Area as well. So I'm pretty close to them. And I have some really unique partnerships with, you know, something like Pete's Coffee. And so I work with them on doing community events, but then I can loop in the other brands I work with, like Specialized Camelback and Goo and chamois Butter and bring in these, all the other partners together and we can do some really cool community events. So it becomes about utilizing my connections and the outreach I can do. And then how can we just do some cool stuff in our community that makes people happy and ride bikes. So we do some fun community rides. And then with Specialized, I can go and be involved with their retailers and dealers. We launched a saddle last year and we have some other product launches. I've been working on some product development with them. So working really closely with that company and believing in what they're doing, of course, because they're investing money in women cycling and doing specific products for women when that matters and believing that innovation and then also just pushing forward and doing cool stuff in the community. And yeah, it's been super fun. So if you ever can come to a Pete's ride and they're really rad and also just any of those community events we're doing is kind of like just an easy way to ride bikes and have fun. And it's a job, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned how it's been important for you to maintain like a career outside of bike racing as you've gone along in your career. So like, what are you doing now? And how do you manage your time? Because I know you ride your bike a lot. And you have all these sponsorship obligations. So how do you balance it all? Yeah, I work for a a large biotechnology company. And I work in
1: corporate affairs and do some activation around social media and partnerships. And so it's pretty awesome, because I get to work with Amgen's Breakaway from Cancer and Amgen's Breakaway from Heart Disease. So we're gonna raise awareness about really important resources available for people fighting cancer or struggling with heart disease or early to like how we can also promote heart health. So that's my day job. And it's awesome. I balancing it, I still don't know how I do it. But I think it's a good juggling technique that sometimes I drop a ball. But most of the time, it's having a really good team around me that can help me from cycling side, you know, working with specialized in my sponsors is awesome, because they understand that, I do have a day job. And so they're pretty flexible on some of my obligations. And then I, I work remotely most of the time and travel back and forth to the office. So it's a matter of just, I have a lot of bikes living in random places around the country. <laughs> so I, I, I can make sure I can ride. And then, you know, I think, I mean, I talked about that trainer road, but like, I don't think people you don't have to train as much as people think. I mean, you know like you can get by and under 20 hours a week and still be very fast so I think you know that life balance part too where you don't you make really quality miles in training and go that way too
0: and is there an expectation to work a certain number of hours per week because I always wonder like because I kind of feel like it should be like if you get your work done and you're efficient then you don't have to have a set number of hours where you're just like getting penalized almost for being efficient but how does that work for you yeah, it's just to, as long as I get my job done.
1: So, and my hours are sometimes odd. So I I do like the like seven to ten work, sneak out for a bike ride, then work from one to five or or something. You know, like you work from one to three, and then, then you like work again at night. It doesn't make you the most social person, but I get to ride my bike and you know kind of juggle around a couple different careers. But I think it does make it when I get on my bike, I'm really happy and it's an emotional release. And then I think. Yeah, I, I'm not very good. I, I, that's why I like the remote working when possible, because if I sat in an office and you told me I'd just sit there, I, I don't know if I'd be nearly as productive if I'm like, okay, I've got two hours, I got to get this done. <laughs> and then I want to get like, make my group ride.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, where's the best place for people to follow you and talk to you and stay in touch with your adventures? You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter, which is
1: at amtetric, T-E-T-R-I-C-K. And I have a website, which I should update more, alisontetrick.com. So I'm around on on all the social platforms and things. So I I look forward to hearing from anybody. Got any questions, you know, let me know. And we're going to go ride gravel and we're going to do that on Instagram. You and I someday. Yeah. Someday soon. Drink Pete's coffee. (laughs) Yeah. Pete's coffee. And I think, I think we're going to bring some bourbon. I hear that that might be a good
0: thing. Yes. (laughs) I heard that that, uh, that the bourbon is where it's at. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking your time to come on this podcast. I know you have a lot on your plate and I'm sure the listeners really enjoyed hearing your story and got a lot out of this. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. That was awesome. And I'm so thankful that you're here listening to the show every single week. I hope that you enjoyed today's guest and that you're having an awesome day. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures, and we'll see you right back here on Monday.